Hey everybody, welcome to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your own excitement for your personal study and help you passionately teach what you're learning to others. My name is Zach and I'm with my wife Krista. And we are very tired. We should be in bed, but we are recording a podcast because we love this episode and we love this block. We were tired last week too. <laughs> we need to somehow stop doing these late on the Sunday evenings. Oh, I but you're going to edit this part out. No, I was going to make you. Read there's it. no editing. We're just <laughs> going straight through. So, but we are excited. This is um, this is these one of my. These are good chapters. Some of my favorite, and uh, they all are. They Alma five was good, and now we get to do Alma six and seven today. That's it. Yeah. So, but study tip first. Yeah, and we something I've been thinking a lot about with our study tips is. We give you a lot of study tips, a lot of teaching tips, a large variety that could never be done in one sitting. And we hope you aren't doing that in one sitting. I guess the thing I've just been thinking is I don't want you to be overwhelmed with the study tips or think, oh wait, I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to read it this way. Instead, we just want to really give you a variety. I think variety, well, I don't think this, this is a real quote. Variety is the spice of life. That's good. That's very good. (laughs) I think variety is the spice of our scripture study. That's a good point. It just gives us a chance to learn differently, learn maybe how we're doing best, or maybe we go through different seasons of wanting to learn in different ways. And I know I've seen that in my own study often is like, sometimes you just want to read and sometimes you want to study deeply. And maybe that goes for months, months at a time of chunks, or maybe it's, Every other day, you're doing something different. So use all the tips, but not all at once, and don't feel overwhelmed by them. In fact, even when you're teaching, there's a lot of power in in varying the things you do. It doesn't mean you do something different. Sometimes in the name of variety, I've seen teachers do things that are pretty far away from uh, studying the scriptures or teaching the scriptures. And when asked about that afterwards, they'll say, well, I know that my students needed a little bit of variety today. Teaching with variety doesn't mean that you do something different. It means you do what you should do differently than you did it yesterday. So if your go-to is to ask students to read six or seven verses looking for something, and then you ask them what they found, and you make a list on the board, if that's what you've done the last couple of lessons, this lesson, vary the way that you do it. Instead of asking them to read six or seven verses, um, maybe you give them the list and ask them some analysis questions about the list, which one they like better, which one they don't like better. Or instead of making a list on the board, you ask them to make their own list on a piece of paper that they then have to stand and explain to the class. Or just small variations and things we do often make a big difference. So I'm picturing a, the scriptures in the middle and all of these arrows pointing towards it of different ways that you can get yourself or your students or anyone you're talking to your about the scriptures, yeah, your family, into the scriptures. So Alma chapter six and seven, um, interestingly enough, every once in a while, I will check the seminary lesson manual. We don't follow that manual, but it's interesting to see how it's paced there and how we're pacing our podcast. Generally, one of our podcast episodes covers, oh, four or five lessons in that seminary manual. Um, For example, our next lesson, I think, is Alma 8 through 16, which is like five or six different seminary lessons. It's a big chunk of scripture. There's a lot that's going on. However, Alma chapters 6 and 7 is one lesson in the seminary manual, which is essentially 30 minutes worth of study. And 
I, I, if there's any SNI curriculum writers, you can, we can get into a, an argument about this if you want, but I don't think that's enough. This is perhaps, perhaps one of my favorite chapters in all of the Book of Mormon because of the power that's there. So here's the setup. In Alma chapter five, our last episode, Alma's in Zarahemla, and the people in Zarahemla has, have slipped into pride and wickedness, and so he has to call them to repentance. I don't think that's what he wants to talk about. I just think that's what he has to talk about. However, in Alma 6 and 7, he goes to the city of Gideon. And just reading the first couple of verses in chapter 7, you get a sense that the people of Gideon are very different than the people of Zarahemla. Alma says, this is verse 5, I trust according to the Spirit of God which is in me that I shall have great joy over you. And he says in verse 6, I trust that you're not in such a state of unbelief as were your brethren, Zarahemla. I trust that you are not lifted up in the pride of your hearts. I trust that you have not set your hearts in the riches and the vain things in the world. I trust that you do not worship idols, etc., etc., etc. In other words, you're doing much better than the people of Zarahemla were. Yeah, you don't just sense that. He's, he's pretty much saying it. Yeah. <laughs> so in verse 7, then, he says, For behold, I say unto you, there are many things to come, and behold, there is one thing which is more important than they all. For behold, the time is not far distant, that the Redeemer liveth and cometh among his people. In my opinion, and this is just my opinion, Alma chapter 7 is the best scriptural explanation, exposition of the atonement of Jesus Christ found anywhere in scriptures. I don't think it's taught anywhere better than here. I don't think it's taught anywhere deeper than here. I don't think it's taught anywhere as powerfully as in Alma chapter 7. And I was curious just to get a take on what we have in the New Testament. And there's accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All of them are just a few um, a few verses that we get of almost like a journal account of mm -hmm. what happened. Someone's observing that he went into the garden, that he prayed, and who was with him, and the basics of, of what happened. And I really like to think about that um, with these verses that we get in Alma 7. Because, and it's almost like these people, especially when you're contrasting with the last chapters that we did in Alma 5, where he's teaching the people of Zarahemla, they're getting kind of these more basic principles. And then here we have Alma 7, the people of Gideon are prepared to receive greater teaching. They're prepared to not just get a sermon and maybe a call to repentance, but they're, they're obedient and they're prepared to be really taught. And these are the rich verses that come because of that. Yeah. In fact, I was noticing just the formality in Alma 5 compared to Alma 7. In Alma 5, he seems it's a very formal address. It's something you can picture that Alma maybe spent time thinking about, um, either writing down to some degree or at least pondering through the direction. And Alma 7 seemed much more relaxed, mm -hmm. like he's talking with friends about something that matters a lot to him. It's almost like he's a little relieved. Yeah, In some yeah. of the verses, like, oh, you're you're doing this. This is so We can great. talk about what I really want to talk yeah. about. Um, this was, uh, so this general conference, Elder Uchtdorf gave a talk called Behold the Man. And he pointed out that when Pilate takes the Savior in front of the Jews, one of the things he says to them is, Behold the man. And Elder Uchtdorf mentions, or says, The Son of God stood in the flesh before the people of Jerusalem. They could not see Jesus. 
They could see Jesus, but they did not truly behold him. They did not have eyes to see. And then he mentions this. So here, Gideon, they have eyes to see, so they get to behold the man much better. And then Elder Uchtdorf says this. In a figurative sense, we too are invited to behold the man. Opinions about him vary in the world. Ancient and modern prophets testify that he is the Son of God. I do this too. It is significant and important that we each come to know for ourselves. So when you ponder the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, what do you see? Those who find a way to truly behold the man find the doorway to life's greatest joys and the balm to life's most demanding despairs. I don't think I could state the purpose of this particular episode any better than that last line to find the doorway to life's greatest joys and the balm to life's most demanding despairs. So what we want to do in Alma 7 is dive into the things that Alma teaches here about the atonement that maybe we misunderstand or that maybe we don't get in other places and that will provide us not only joy, but balm to some of our sorrows. So point number one that Alma emphasizes, this seems so duh. But it wasn't duh to me um, until President Nelson helped me to change my mind. Point number one is the atonement of Jesus Christ is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Well, I think that's something we had actually talked about before. In another episode? No, not in another episode. You and I. Oh, before, okay. before President Nelson. Oh, had yeah, yeah. We talked a lot about how we tend to detach. We just... We talk about the atonement. Yeah, but we we need to talk about Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. He is it. And so actually when President Nelson gave this talk, we were kind of like, High five and fist bumping. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. Like, yeah. So I'm going to read the quote. It's from April 2017, and many of you will remember this talk because it was awesome, but also because I think we quoted it another time <laughs> in another episode. But He says, it is doctrinally incomplete to speak of the Lord's atoning sacrifice by shortcut phrases, such as the atonement, or the enabling power of the atonement, or applying the atonement, or being strengthened by the atonement. These expressions present a real risk of misdirecting faith by treating the event as if it had living existence and capabilities independent of our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Under the... Under the Father's great eternal plan, it is the Savior who suffered. It is the Savior who broke the bands of death. It is the Savior who paid the price for our sins and transgressions and blots them out on condition of our repentance. It is the Savior who delivers us from physical and spiritual death. There is no amorphous entity called the Atonement, upon which we may call for succor, healing, forgiveness, or power. Jesus Christ is the source. Sacred terms such as atonement and resurrection describe what the Savior did according to the Father's plan so that we may live with hope in this life and gain eternal life in the world to come. The Savior's atoning sacrifice, the central act of all human history, is best understood and appreciated when we expressly and clearly connect it to Him. And Alma teaches that, starting in verse 10, where he discusses the birth of the Savior, and then really in verses 11 through 13, he's very clear that the atonement is something Jesus Christ suffered that enables him to help us. The atonement is not something that Jesus Christ created upon which we draw for strength. As President Nelson says, there is no quote-unquote atonement out there. 
The atonement is just the name we give to the act or acts that Jesus Christ did that empowered him to help us. And so point one seems really simple, but it's not. In fact, here's the verse I like the best. This is verse 14. Um, After the beginning couple of lines where he discusses repentance and the Savior washing away our sins, he says this, Therefore, come and be baptized under repentance, that you may be washed from your sins, that you may have faith on the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world, and who is mighty to save and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Alma is adamant that it is Jesus who is the mighty one to save, and it is Jesus who cleanses. It's not the atonement that saves us. It's not the atonement that cleanses us. It's not the atonement that empowers us. At every single time we say that, we should replace the atonement with, it's Jesus Christ that saves me. It is Jesus Christ that empowers me. It is him, it is he that cleanses me and saves me and washes me and heals me and enables me and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I love that in verse seven that he talks about, similar to what President Nelson said, one thing which is more important than they all. And then he goes on to talk about the birth and what he did and who this person really is. And we were kind of wrestling with why that's important, or we thought there might be a wrestle we had with that. Why why is it important? Why can't we just go around saying the atonement? And one thought I had was um, to misunderstand this. It may seem like semantics. It may just seem like the way that we say things, but to misunderstand it is to almost eliminate Christ from the picture. Um, I remember, because this mental shift is fairly recent for me as well, I remember the way I thought about it before President Nelson was so clear and overt about it. And I remember thinking that the atonement was this thing that we didn't really understand, but somehow the atonement cleanses us of sin. And now that I know, no, it's a real person. It is the Son of God that cleanses me of my sins. It makes things so much more concrete, and it directs my affection, my prayers, and my attention to the Savior instead of to a historical act. Yeah, I think it matters because we aren't giving ourselves much opportunity for his power and his Mm -hmm. grace. It matters because we need to connect exactly that, that event to who he is. Otherwise, we're not getting the full power and we're not really understanding that the capabilities that we can have when we connect him to everything. Not to believe the point, but I think it's in that same talk where President Nelson talks about, isn't it, we're reaching out uh, to, he talks about the woman with the issue of blood and she reaches out to grab the Savior's cloak. Mm-hmm. And he says that that's the attitude we need to have towards the Savior, that we need to reach out to him just like a drowning man gasps for air. Not towards the atonement, not towards this cloud of magical power that heals us, but to the Son of God. Yeah. The second point if it is the atonement of Jesus Christ, Alma's really clear on what that atonement entailed for him. What did he actually suffer? And so verses 11 through 13, which are really well known, but he creates this list. He, meaning Jesus, shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations, and I love this phrase, of every kind. And he'll add to that sicknesses at the very end of verse 11. He'll add death in verse 12, and he'll add infirmities in verse 12. And then at the very end of the list in verse 13, he adds sins. 
But all these other things he mentions before, maybe it's because in Gideon, that's what they need help with the most is their pains and afflictions and trials. We don't have time to do this, but if you want a really fun study, pause right here, make this list from verses 11 through 13, and then ask yourself, what exactly are my pains? And then what exactly are my afflictions? And then what are my temptations? What are my sicknesses? What are my infirmities? Make your own list so that you can begin to grasp what it is that the Savior suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he actually feel? At the very least, pains, afflictions, and temptations of every kind. And I think those verses are so important. I just have never noticed that that part of the sins being at the very end. I don't know if that's what they needed, like you said, or the reason for that. But isn't that powerful to think of that? We think so often that the only reason that we need to turn to Jesus Christ is for our sins. Mm -hmm. But there's this whole new world that we need to turn to him for. And if we're not doing that, then we really are missing out on his power. And making that list that Zach mentioned would be powerful for all of us because we all need all of those things, all the kinds or every kind, as you would say. Um, and to really recognize that he is there to help us in all capacities. The third point, I guess the second point should probably end with a semicolon. I really like semicolons. They're fun to put in sentences. And what they do is they connect two sentences together, but you don't want to separate them by a period. It's a soft separation. So point two, that Jesus suffered every kind of affliction should end with a semicolon. Point three continues on that. We must keep on the covenant path. Here's the question that really got to us, and I think probably gets to a lot of us. Uh, in our episode on grace, I don't remember what number it was, but a long time ago, yeah. one of the questions that comes up a lot is, okay, if Jesus Christ did all of this, and if it is because of his grace that we are saved and healed, just because Jesus is good, he wants to bless us and save us and help us, then why do I have to do anything at all? And Alma gives a list, starting in verse 15 until the end. He gives this list, even to Gideon, as good as they are, he gives a list of things that they should do. And the question that we had was, why? Why do I have to do something? Why does God ask me to do something if it really is all dependent on the Son and His atonement? If He's already done everything, mm -hmm. then why Why do we need to do it? Yeah, I think you should start with yours, the one that you found. Yeah, I think this one can get really confusing. Why? Why do we? Why do we? And understanding that, um, in 15, verse 15, he says, Lay aside every sin which easily doth beset you, which doth bind you down to destruction. Yea, come and go forth and show unto your God that ye are willing to repent of your sins and enter into covenant with him. Sometimes maybe we just aren't willing to receive what he's what he's giving us he's already given us this gift his gift of grace his gift of forgiveness all of those things um but we have to receive it mm -hmm. he's not going to force any of us to receive his gift even though he has already given it to us and so the first reason why is that i think we, we have to receive the gift that he's offering uh, one of the ones that i really liked in verse 19 Alma uses this metaphor repeatedly throughout these verses of walking and walking a path. In verse 19, he says, I perceive that you are in the path of righteousness. I perceive that you are in the path which leads to the kingdom of God. Yea, I perceive that you are making his path straight. And then verse 20, 
I perceive that it has been made known unto you by the testimony of his word that he, meaning Jesus, cannot walk in crooked paths, neither doth he vary from that which he hath said. So verse 19, I perceive that you are walking this covenant path. President Nelson's phrase that he has used repeatedly, right, to keep on the covenant path. And in verse 20, though, he says, I also perceive that you have perceived that Jesus is walking the covenant path. And when you walk the covenant path, you walk with the Savior. Of course, you can go your own way and come back to it. But isn't life so much better when you're walking with the Savior? And so keeping his commandments and acting, even though Jesus has already performed an atonement, enables me to walk with him on that path. And I think one of the things that kept coming up in my mind as I was reading these verses over and over is that as we are walking with the Savior, or as we are walking on his His covenant path with him, we are allowed um, greater knowledge from him. We're so close to him. We're close to his spirit that allows us to learn greater things because we are with him. He teaches us as he walks with us. Yeah, and it's more we have greater access to his teachings mm. and therefore his power, right? Yeah. I think we've, I don't know, not that we're exceptionally good at walking the covenant path, but I think that's been true in our life. The times when we're doing the best at scripture study, prayer, family home evening is the time when it feels like we get easier, quicker answers to our questions where we feel more guided. Well, I don't, I don't think we want to, don't want to get into the trap of like, I do this and I receive this, mm -hmm. I do this and I receive this, but rather that when we're seeking him, mm -hmm. he talks to he us. He talks to us. And I think that's all it is. We're opening up that communication with him because you're seeking after him. Because yeah. I don't think, again, it's not that, that's where we get, it's so easily, right? We get in that confusion of, I'm going to do this, and so he's going to give me this, and and that's just not the way it works. But instead, we are walking on his path. Yeah, I guess that's him. the only way to explain yep, it, right? Yep. It's kind of, it, you can get trapped really quickly, I think. The third thing that I really liked um, under this last point that we must keep on the covenant path is that when we do that, Alma says in verse 22, that we walk blameless before God. And then in verse 25, he says, may the Lord bless you and keep your garments spotless. Of course, Jesus is the garment cleanser. He's the one that removes the blame. But when we walk the covenant path, our lives remain blameless and spotless. Walking the covenant path not only allows us to have the Savior teach us and walk with us, but it allows for constant healing and constant cleansing. So that I don't have to feel the weight of blame and guilt and shame because I'm constantly with the Savior who at every point along the road heals me and saves me. And it doesn't say that we're not ever going to get spots. Or that we're not, but that as we're closer to him, we can understand better how he can help us remove those things that we don't want. So to recap our three points, the atonement of Jesus Christ is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Number two, he suffered every kind of affliction. Semicolon, number three, we must keep on the covenant path. President Uchtdorf says this, when you are encompassed by sorrows and grief, behold the man. When you feel lost or forgotten, behold the man. 
When you are despairing, deserted, doubting, damaged, or defeated, behold the man. He will comfort you. He will heal you and give meaning to your journey. He will pour out his spirit and fill your heart with exceeding joy. If I can, I want to end with one of my favorite stories that I heard years ago. The author is Joshua Harris. It's called The Room. It's a longer story, but I think there's power in it. In that place, between wakefulness and dreams, I found myself in the room. There were no distinguishing features, save for one wall covered with small index card files. They were like the ones in libraries that list titles by author or subject in alphabetical order. But these files, which stretched from floor to ceiling and seemingly endless in either direction, had very different headings. As I drew near the wall of files, the first to catch my attention was one that read, Girls I Have Liked. I opened it and began flipping through the cards. I quickly shut it, shocked to realize that I recognized the names written on each one. And then, without being told, I knew exactly where I was. This lifeless room with its small files was a crude catalog system for my life. Here were written the actions of my every moment, big and small, in a detail my memory couldn't match. A sense of wonder and curiosity coupled with horror stirred within me and I began randomly opening files and exploring their content. Some brought joy and sweet memories, others a sense of shame and regret so intense that I would look over my shoulder to see if anyone was watching. A file named Friends was next to one marked Friends I Have Betrayed. The titles range from the mundane to the outright weird. Books I have read, lies I have told, comfort I have given, jokes I have laughed at. Some were almost hilarious in their exactness. Things I have yelled at my brothers. Others I couldn't laugh at. Things I have done in my anger. Things I have muttered under my breath at my parents. When I came to the file marked lustful thoughts, I felt a chill run through my body. I pulled the file out only an inch, not willing to test its size, and drew out a card. I shuddered at its detailed content. I felt sick to think that such a moment had been recorded. An almost animal rage broke, on, broke over me. One thought dominated my mind. No one must ever see these cards. No one must ever see this room. I have to destroy them. In an insane frenzy, I yanked the file out. Its size didn't matter now. I had to empty it and burn the cards. But as I took it at one end and began pounding it on the floor, I could not dislodge a single card. I became desperate and pulled out a card, only to find it as strong as steel when I tried to tear it. Defeated and utterly helpless, I returned the file to its slot. Leaning my forehead against the wall, I let out a long, self-pitying sigh. And then I saw it. The title bore, People I Have Shared the Gospel With. The handle was brighter than those around it, newer, almost unused. I pulled on its handle a small box, not more than three inches long, fell into my hand. I could count the cards it contained in one hand. And then the tears came. I began to weep, sobbed so deep that the hurt started my stomach and shook through me. I fell on my knees and cried. I cried out of shame, from the overwhelming shame of it all. The rows of file shelves swirled in my tear-filled eyes. No one must ever, ever know of this room. I must lock it up and hide the key. But then as I pushed away the tears, I saw him. No, please, not him, not here. Oh, anyone but Jesus. I watched helplessly as he began to open the files and read the cards. I couldn't bear to watch his response. And in the moments I could bring myself to look at his face, I saw a sorrow deeper than my own. He seemed to intuitively go to the worst boxes. Why did he have to read every one? Finally, he turned and looked at me from across the room. He looked at me with pity in his eyes, but this was a pity that didn't anger me. I dropped my head, covered my face with my hands, and began to cry again. He walked over and put his arm around me. 
He could have said so many things, but he didn't say a word. He just cried with me. Then he got up and walked back to the wall of files. Starting at one end of the room, he took out a file and one by one began to sign his name over mine on each card. No, I shouted, rushing to him. All I could find to say was no, as I pulled the card from him. His name shouldn't be on these cards, but there it was, written in red so rich, so dark, so alive. The name of Jesus covered mine. It was written with his blood. He gently took the card back. He smiled a sad smile and began to sign the cards. I don't think I'll ever understand how he did it so quickly, but the next instant it seemed I heard him close the last file and walk back to my side. He placed his hand on my shoulder and said, It is finished. I stood up, and he led me out of the room. There was no lock on its door. There were still cards to be written. All right, that's it for tonight. Thank you for listening. Um, we've posted a few um, resources, specifically some from last episode, on our Instagram page. If you aren't following us there, we would love to be able to connect with you there. You can find us at the Scripture Study Project on Instagram and find some of those resources that will help you with your study. And we'd love to hear from you. So thanks. Thanks.